What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND Hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. I'm here with Shahid Khan, the co-founder of Loom and Prologue. Shahid, how's it going? Going good. Thanks for having me, Cortland. Thanks for thanks for coming. So you are working on Prologue right now, which is sort of like a how would you describe it? like a parent company, a holding company? Yeah, yeah. Prologue is a holding company of both media and tech brands, and our starting brands are Hyper, an early stage accelerator, as well uh-huh. as Product Hunt, the home of a lot of the you know early beginnings for right. some of the most promising companies of our of our time. Yeah. I think everybody listening will know what Product Hunt is. It's kind of like the best place to launch your startup. Probably half the people listening have launched their startup on Product Hunt, whether it went well or not. I've done, I think, three different launches on Product Hunt. But not many will know what Hyper is. How would you describe Hyper? Hyper is a early stage accelerator. We call it a founder program. It's a $60 million fund. And we... Our typical offering is 300K for 5% of any startup that goes through our program. And it's a very hands-on four-week process with our companies. And it's it's completely remote. So we invest primarily early, but occasionally we'll do an investment into an existing round of a company. Cool. So is it safe to say that Hyper is like, it's almost like a competitor to Y Combinator in a way. The fact that you have these cohorts, the fact that you're investing, I think you said $300,000 or 5% of the company, it's like similarish terms. And then like everybody goes through this process together and then you're sort of providing these, these benefits, right? Helping with distribution, presumably through product hunt and other means, helping with product, helping with recruiting. Is that a fair comparison? So you're like sort of like a new Y Combinator? The way I'll say it is YC has definitely paved the way for you know, Silicon Valley to get in early in a company, provide uh, support, provide mentorship from people who have built stuff in the past and create really this new model that never really existed before. YC has also been around for, I think, 12 or 15 years now. So that model has proven to work. And I think that the big differentiation here is Hyper has this network of mentors and investors and our general founder community that a lot of companies uh, tend to work very hands-on and very closely with. So that, that's one specific angle. And then the separate angle is the distribution element. So like as companies start to, you know, either become launch ready or, you know, have already launched a product and want to build brand awareness, that's where Hyper comes in and kind of helps them get access to that distribution. Cool. So we're going to talk a lot about this. We're going to talk about like the backstory. How do you how do you raise a sixty million dollar fund? How do you def- determine which startups to invest in? But I think first I want to know like more about you because it's the first time that we've met, and I have no idea like how somebody even ends up in the position that you're in. And so I understand you have like kind of a a, a long history in the startup community, and it begins presumably with this, this startup you created, I think, when you were a teenager. I read an article that said, meet 16-year-old Shahid Khan, who's the CEO and founder of Viatask. I don't have very many people on the podcast who started a startup at 16. So what was Viatask and what was going on in your life that you decided to start a startup as a teenager? 
Yeah, it's you know, it's one of those things when you look back on your past and you're like, man, that was like a very embarrassing time of my life. But again, <laughs> like I was 16, I'm 26 now, so this is almost over a decade ago. Mm. Um, yeah, Viatask was it, it's the concept stemmed from me being a true 16 year old, right? I hadn't gotten my driver's permit yet, so I couldn't really drive anywhere, and I asked myself the question as most 16 year olds probably do, which is I just got back home from school and I was craving McDonald's, but McDonald's was probably two and a half miles away from my house. And there's no way I was going to walk to McDonald's. There's no way I was going to bike to McDonald's just to have McDonald's. I was like, what if there was an app at the time? Uh, this is when like, you know, social on uh, mobile was really starting to uh, explode. This was like 2011 uh 2012 and uh, i was like what if there was a mobile app that would allow people to post their errands and people within their community within their neighborhood would bid on these projects these micro tasks and complete these tasks so whether it's mowing someone's lawn shoveling someone's driveway picking up you know dry cleaning from the dry cleaners right etc and the whole concept was called neighbors helping neighbors was like the tagline of the business right but let's step back a second because i mean you're 16 like most 16 year olds they're like i want mcdonald's and it's too far away and i can't drive they just don't eat mcdonald's <laughs> they don't they don't <laughs> say like let me start something in the vein of task rabbit or airbnb and create a local network effects driven startup like what was going on in your head that that was even an option for you like who were your influences were you reading startup books like how does a 16-year-old come to that conclusion that that's how you're going to spend your time? I remember a bit vaguely, I was in my library at school. I was in high school at the time, probably towards the end of my freshman year, beginning of my sophomore year. And I was in the library during study hall, and I opened up TechCrunch, and I saw the first thing that was that popped up, which was Peter Thiel had announced this new program called 20 Under 20 which had since been rebranded to the Teal Fellowship. And as, you know, a early sophomore, teachers are starting to tell you about college and how, like, you have to start thinking about college and admissions and start thinking through what you want to do for the rest of your life over, like, the next six months. And if you haven't made the decision, then you're kind of falling behind. And I always knew that, like, I, I'm just a really bad student. So the, <laughs> like the way I've learned and have learned a lot in my life to this day is just by doing and failing and trying to be more deliberate about how I fail. And I just knew that I was always fascinated by business and technology. Okay. And that's why I was like reading TechCrunch. But yeah, I mean, it, it all stemmed from that moment where it was kind of like this aha, the founder of PayPal, first investor in Facebook was giving... Uh, students $100,000 to drop out of what he quoted, stop out of college, which was a softer version of dropping out of college. And it just spoke to my soul. And I was like, I have to like apply to this. I applied, didn't even make it past the interviews. They're like, sorry, this isn't a fit for you. But then I applied again the second year, made it to interviews, but didn't get it. But I think that was all the conviction I really needed to tell myself this is the path I want to go down in life. And this is like something that I'm interested about. And I want to kind of pull the thread a bit that ultimately led to like, you know, me really thinking about and surrounding myself around a lot of technology and really learning about how startups worked. And that's what led to via task. So when you apply to the Theo fellowship, do you apply like with a startup in mind? You say, I've got this app via task. 
it's going to be huge. Like, let me into the Theo Fellowship. I don't want to go to college. I want to come be a startup founder. Or do you just kind of apply as an individual? A little bit of both. So you apply as an individual, and as part of your application, you they ask you what is the thing that you want to be working on? Like, wh- how are you going to be spending the money? As, and early on, it was very much you know, research-based, and it was very inviting for people who were trying to build like water wells and, you know, parts of Africa to finding aging cures and like all of these like really hard science, really difficult projects that actually required a lot more money than just a hundred thousand dollars in an 18 year old kid. But it wasn't really about that. It was about how far can this 18, 19 year old kid take a hundred thousand dollars into their research. And then eventually, you know, as the these cohorts became more popular and as the program became more popular, I believe the program shifted a bit more to let's start funding founders who already have a startup and the startup is already you know doing relatively well. I, I think there was like a Twitter thread out there somewhere where people dissected the Teal Fellowship program and looked at all of the people who have gone through the program that kind of went off to do really big things. Dylan Field from Figma, Vitalik Buren, who started Ethereum and there's like a number, maybe a dozen plus who have started, you know, like multi-unicorns. So going back to your initial question, they, you know, you could apply as an individual at the time back in 2011 with no idea. Now it's very much geared towards people who already have an existing business. And I applied with Viatask at the time, you know, did like the full business model rundown of how I felt like I was going to start in Naperville, Illinois, which is where I lived at the time and then expand into metropolitan area of Chicago, and then expand into surrounding cities, and then kind of expand across the US, and then eventually the world. And it, it didn't work out. Obviously, there's no via task anymore. What were the some of the lessons that you learned? Like this is like your first like startup failure as a teenager. What did you come away, come away thinking? Yeah, I mean, it was it's it's funny, right? It, it was a very expensive way to learn that I should probably just walk the two and a half miles to get my McDonald's. <laughs> um, Honestly, like I think working on Viatask and like building the network of people that I started meeting online, I met Josh Buckley, who's now my co-founder at Prologue and at Hyper. I knew about him at the time when he was starting Mino Monsters. So there were like this kind of, there was like this class of, you know, from 15, 16 to like 20, 21 year olds who all kind of knew of each other in like this like Facebook group that I was a part of. And uh, for me, you know, having traditional Indian Pakistani parents, immigrant parents who just saw, you know, one path of life, which is, you know, you get good grades, you get to a good college and you get into a good career. This was, whatever I was doing was very foreign to them. So a couple of lessons that I learned coming out of Via Task was, you know, if I could sell my parents on me not going to college, I can sell anyone. And that I knew technology was the sector that I wanted to go down because I've just always been surrounded around technology, specifically computers throughout, you know, like most of my adolescence till now. And here you were ready for, I guess, round two. And you eventually started another company that probably a lot of listeners will be familiar with called Loom, L-O-O-M.com. So Loom is a way to record sort of quick videos of your screen and also like your camera. So there's a sort of video of you while you're screen recording. You could share it with other people. And Loom is humongous. 
I don't know, do you guys share revenue numbers or any sort of other measure of like Loom success? We don't share revenue numbers. We just publicly, there's an article that went out on Business Insider today, which was an interview with my co-founder, Vinay, that talks about the journey from, from zero to 14 million users worldwide. Yeah. Uh, and then also during the pandemic, like how Loom had massive tailwinds. But yeah, I mean, the company has definitely scaled from nothing to now a lot of people rely on it to get some of their best work done. Yeah, that's huge. 14 million users. I'm looking at your website. 200,000 companies. Why is Loom so popular? How did you make an app that is this successful? So kind of the backstory, everything that led up to Loom, I worked at a company called Backplane as an intern doing design work where I met Vinay, my now co-founder. And I'm I'm giving this context because a lot of you know, founders ask me like, hey, how did you meet your co-founders? How do I find a co-founder for my company? Mm-hmm. And uh, the way I found both my co-founders, one, I worked with, and then he became a really good friend of mine. We ended up roommates in San Mateo. And then I went to Weebly. I was a product designer for about a year. And then my ADHD, you know, and excitement got really crazy. And I was like, I want to go into venture. I want to break into venture. And I went and worked at Upfront Ventures down in LA. So I grabbed, packed as much stuff as I could in a suitcase, moved down to LA and crashed on the couch of my now co-founder CEO at Loom. What ended up being like crashing on his couch for two weeks ultimately led to me moving into his second bedroom in his apartment. And the three of us just became really good friends and decided we wanted to build something. Didn't really know what it was going to be, but we just knew that we all had the skill set. I was design, Joe was product, and Vinay was engineering. And we're like, perfect, you know, combination. So let's go off and let's let's build stuff for fun. And I remember we got on a Skype call. We decided to just list a bunch of ideas that we have on a whiteboard. And I think we came up with six, seven different ideas. The first one was uh, my idea that I wrote down, which was a user testing platform, but with product experts. And this was something that I was saying when I was a product designer was sometimes I just want design feedback or product feedback from people who have built and scaled products before, and I'm willing to pay for it. And I, I, at the time, I'd assumed that was a large enough market for us to build within. The second idea was Joe's idea, which was, you know, there's a lot of excess food that goes uh, to waste. How do we build, um, you know, at the time, the way we're thinking about it was like the imperfect produce for restaurants. So we just went down the list and we're like, let's just go with the first idea. And we started building what was initially called OpenTest, later becomes Loom. OpenTest goes through two large pivots over the course of nine months before we eventually landed on Loom. And I think that part gets you know, kind of overshadowed by all of the success Loom has had in the last couple of years. But that was like some of the most difficult, painful period of probably Joe, Vinay, and my life of the 26 years I've been on this planet. And that was mainly because, you know, we we started the company with our, you know, our savings and we're like, I was coming out of the world of venture. I was promised that a lot of the people that, you know, I I was co-investing with at the time would want to back Loom, blindfolded, tell me what you want to do, we'll back you guys, was kind of like the promise I was coming out of it with. And then... As we started to find product market fit, as we started to ask people to use our product and we're building the product um, and really, really, you know, making sure we're aware of how much burn we're spending, all of this to be said, we didn't really have the success that a lot of people saw we did later on in, in the years to come. 
our first investment was a $10,000 loan that one of Joe's friends gave us. And that was just so we could make rent the following month. And this was like into month nine, month 10. We had initially pivoted into like an intercom for user testing from the marketplace idea. And then from intercom to user test, uh, the intercom of user testing, that ultimately after maybe 100 or 200 emails we had sent to various people begging them to use our product, Harvard's research lab picked it up. They ran a test on a specific prompt with their researchers and someone from their research lab used the same extension that we had built for the testers to record a summary of the six different videos that they had just watched. Okay. So now this person is using it as like a generalized communication tool. And that's not and what that's you guys expected and not what you were planning on. Like, okay, that's cool. Not at all. And it was kind of like, you know, last, it was maybe like two in the morning and we were like, holy crap, like this seems, this is like, you know, this, this might be a clear direction into what we should be doing. Or it's probably like a false positive and we should just continue right. staying course. Uh, well, that's a tough decision to make because it's like, okay, yeah. you're staying the course. You have all these plans. You have all this money and time and energy invested going in one direction. Uh, someone does something unexpected, but it's kind of like, okay, who cares? <laughs> People do unexpected exactly. things all the time. Like how does that convince you to just completely turn the business around and do something totally different? Totally. And we're hit with this fork where, you know, we could take a Hail Mary and just pivot into this new direction and hope that, you know, more than one person decide that this is something they want to use or you know we feel like we're hitting the right direction people are starting to finally use our product and we should just build out what we're currently building so we decided to do the hail mary and basically ripped the extension out of the product and rebranded it from open test to open vid and threw a landing page together you could go back on archive.org and look at opentest.co and it looks really ugly that's all that's that's entirely on me i was a design i was designing <laughs> at the time and openvid launched on product hunt june 16 of 2016 and within 24 hours we got 3000 people to download our extension and start using it and by the end of the week i think we had maybe 5 or 6000 people who had installed the app installed the chrome extension to use it for a variety of things i think that's when we finally like, you know, took a deep breath and we're like, okay, people are finally using this new thing. And now we need to go like raise capital because the $10,000 loan we took from Joe's friend is now coming to an end. So I remember this very vividly. We had two different decks. One deck was promoting the original idea, open test. The second deck was promoting open fit, this new concept that we now finally have users for. And we're A-B testing our pitch and I remember our first investment was from a patent lawyer who rented my room on Airbnb. Uh, and I told him this is what we were building. So he, the first investment was actually five grand and then he doubled down, put in another five grand. Uh, and then the second investor came in at 25,000. Third investor came in at 50,000. And then finally our fourth investor led our pre-seed round and gave us $200,000. And that was fifteen seventeen fund. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I want to, move on. We could talk about Loom for probably two hours. But yeah. uh, before we do, I, I, is there like if, like a single biggest reason or decision or process that you guys had at Loom that you would say accounts for the fact that it's been able to grow so large? Because on ND Hackers, like we rarely, I rarely talk to people who've built products that reach 14 million users. Like that's a, that's just a tremendous uh, amount of reach. Like what, 
what is it about Loom? Was the market just the right size? Was it the right product? Was it the right time? Like, what do you attribute most of Loom's success to? Yeah, the market really, really wasn't ripe for what we were building. I would say up until maybe 2018. So from 2016 to 2018, we were just getting these like early adopters, ICs from different companies, different different org sizes who were like, oh, you know, I can record a video walking through my presentation or I can record, you know, if I work on the support team, I can record a quick like how to on how to like, you know, right. downgrade your billing plan. So, and then in, on the remote side, the only company that was truly remote that really publicized it was Envision at the time, but there wasn't, it wasn't really mass appeal. Like remote work was still a benefit that you'd provide mm. as, you know, part of like, a, you know. So you're like way earlier than all lunch. this stuff. You're earlier than the remote work trend, really catching on. You were earlier than obviously the pandemic. And I guess by the time, those things did start to get bigger, you were already there, huh? Yeah, I would say those those trends ended up becoming tailwinds for Loom. It wasn't necessarily the reason why we built Loom. So that brings us to today, where you're running Prologue, which has like sort of two products right now, Product Hunt and Hyper. And Hyper is, to remind listeners, kind of the YC competitor, for lack of a better word. And I have so many questions about this because I think fundraising and investing, it's not something I explore a ton on this show, but it's super interesting. And it's becoming a thing that more and more indie hackers and early stage founders are considering, even if they don't live in Silicon Valley. And so one of the things that comes to mind is like this business of investing in startups, essentially like the number one value add is like money, right? Like any investor is going to put money into your startup. And like that's the number one thing a founder could get anything that they would probably take. And money is very, like it's a commodity. Right, like somebody dollar bills from one investor are kind of the same as dollar bills from another investor. So how do you stand out? You know, how do you differentiate yourself when essentially the number one thing that you offer as an investor, and this is true for every VC firm and every fund, is kind of similar to the, the thing that every everybody else offers? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And to give you context, when I was leaving Loom, I was like, if I there was a lot of a lot of my investor friends were like, you should go and raise your own fund or you should you know, think about joining a boutique fund. And I told myself I wouldn't really start a venture firm if there wasn't something that was very novel about what I was providing to founders because that was what ultimately led, you know, Joe and I to picking our current investors. It was, you know, like, what is this person providing that the other people on our cap table cannot? So... And it's really, it's it's actually incredibly hard to differentiate as an investor, just given how abundant capital has become in the last couple of years. And to give you an idea, in 2021, over $621 billion were invested in startups globally. And that was like an all-time record. But the one thing that has kind of always been limited has been like attention. It's like attention has always been scarce and it's been harder than ever for startups to break through and reach people that actually matter for their growth. What once was probably breaking news or a pivotal moment for a company is now a drop in the bucket with all the financings and you know PR that's going out there and all the you know the Twitter threads that are that have kind of been published ever since. Again, like another tailwind that Prologue and specifically Hyper is going through is the major decentralization of Silicon Valley. So this shift basically means companies can be formed anywhere and increasingly, you know, they're actually based outside of the US. And in fact, like another staggering fact that I learned uh, a few months ago was out of the 900 unicorns that exist today, nearly 50% of them came out of the US or outside of the US, sorry. And when you look at that 
from a purely statistical perspective, you have to realize that what companies need the most, regardless of if they're a pre-seed company all the way to series A, series B and beyond, are three things, product, distribution and recruiting. So we're basically aligning Hyper to provide value across those three buckets for the companies that come in. So Hyper is incredibly like high quality. The, the founders that come in are generally, you know, very driven first-time founders or proven second-time founders. So it's really helping companies stage up from where they were when they joined. That makes sense. So that's I think answers a lot of the questions about why would a founder choose Hyper, et cetera, like what, what attracts them to you. But then you've got the whole other side of the equation, which is like, how do you do a good job as an investor? Like if you think of the, about the business of investing, especially in startups, like it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to pick one. Yeah. It's hard to determine like who start. And to some degree, even if you're doing it for six months or a year, you might not even know if you're doing a good job. And so how do you look at, because it takes a while for companies to grow and scale and turn into what they're going to turn into. Like Loom itself in the first few months, like someone might have looked at it and been like, this is going nowhere. <laughs> so how do you like how do you see that side of things? If somebody wants to invest in startups, how do you pick the winners and how do you pass on the, those who aren't necessarily going to be winners, even if they might look like it in the early days? It's a it's a great question. And I, I would say as someone who's relatively new to investing, I'm still learning a lot of this. However, I, I would say I've learned I picked up on a couple of key things that matter a lot. You want to generally find founders who will succeed regardless of your help. Like they're determined enough, they're selfish enough in their own right to build something that will ideally help, you know, if depending on the company, hundreds of thousands to millions of people globally. And, you know, venture is an accelerant of these startups. Uh, so if you provide the right people with the right capital and the right access, if you could provide them with the right tools that they need at the right time, that's basically going to help propel them. It kind of like help all the learnings that they would have like a year or two years from now. You kind of want to condense that in the first couple of months. And if you could do that really well, those companies are going to, you know, succeed much faster and better than, than if they were, you know, not raising venture capital. So I think, you know, there are certain businesses that are, you know, kind of aligned perfectly for the way venture works as a business model. And there are a lot of businesses that, you know, don't really require venture. But for those that do, you kind of generally just want to find founders who can do well, regardless if they work with you or if they don't. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I think one of the things I'm most curious about is just like finding these founders because it's super competitive. Like you're out there trying to find them because these people are out there, people who are very determined, who are going to succeed without you. But like, by the time you find them, they might have already been snapped up, right? Somebody are, might have already invested in them, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, what do you guys do to try to, like, to find them? You use Product Hunt, you know, as sort of like a, a, an early sort of signal to who you might want to contact and invest in? Are there other means that you use to find founders? Product Hunt is great for inbound deal flow from Loom launching in June of 2016 to Notion and Airtable and Brex and, you know, a number of other companies yeah. all having their inception on product time. Startups um, just like come to product time without you having to do very much at all. Yeah. And I think, you know, while product time will, you know, become a great channel of deal flow for Hyper, I think the other thing to also remember is Hyper will only be as good as the program and its offering for founders. So if we really wanted to, you know, see the company before they got any type of funding from anyone, 
we have to make sure that people under founders specifically understand what we're offering and how it's valuable to them. For example, you know, there's a great community on indie hackers and a lot of people who are probably starting companies in that community. And uh, our brand at Hyper is completely encompassed around like running very intimate cohorts with select companies about four times a year. And we want to be pretty hands-on with the companies that we work with and make sure that each company gets the attention that it deserves as opposed to funding, you know, 100, 200 companies a cohort. Yeah. I like the idea of running four batches a year because it's just more, it's more iterations through the loop, which means more, I guess, opportunities for you all to like learn from your mistakes, to do it better next time. So, you know, this time a year or two from now, you will have had four or eight batches to learn from. And you also get sort of more shots on goal in terms of word of mouth. Because I think being a founder, if you want to consider going through a program like this, often it comes from like friends who've been through and said, oh, here's why this was awesome. Here's why I liked YC. Here's why I liked Hyper. Here's what I didn't like. And so it's a process that I just I assume just takes a while to get something like this spinning and like up off the ground. Like with Y Combinator in particular, you know, if I look at like a lot of the reasons why what they've done has worked so well, part of it has been like these stories that have come out of it, right? So like everybody knows that Airbnb came out of Y Combinator or Dropbox came out of Y Combinator or that Stripe was like funded by the YC founders. And so I think once those stories succeed, it's not much different than like a school like Harvard or something where you see people who are successful who've been through that process and then you think, oh, I want to go through that process too so I can be like them. And so in a sense, yeah. like, you guys are working on the phase where you're trying to create these stories, these awesome stories of people who've gone through Hyper and then created something successful and inspiring. I think oftentimes founders underestimate how difficult it is to build a really good brand. It took Loom three and a half years for people to start like picking up on what Loom actually was. Now, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of broadly known, but uh, that was, you know, three and a half years of like getting to the point where people have heard of Loom or have seen a Loom video. And then the, you know, following two and a half years was just like accelerating that through different channels. We're only at month, I think month eight or month nine at Hyper, but it's still very early. And I think our, as long as we do our job right and, you know, do right by our founders, it'll naturally have this like network effect where the more founders that come into hyper and the hyper community, uh, the more, you know, referrals will get through the hyper community for other founders that should participate. And those actually tend to be the best referrals. I believe there's like a stat around, you know, a, a large majority of the Sequoia scout investments came from referrals of existing founders. So that was, you know, that was always a fascinating concept to me. And, uh, you know, if there's anyone in the community or anyone listening to this pod who's interested in breaking into investing or, you know, is a scout of a different venture fund, it's really, you know, some of the best deal flow comes from being a founder because you get to like sh- like share notes and share learnings and also be vulnerable. You know, it's like, hey, I have to like fire my co-founder and the other person's like, actually, you should talk to this person. They actually had to go through something similarly. Right. So it just creates this like inherent trust. Yeah, it's super helpful to go through like a sort of a batch of founders and talk to lots of people. I know a ton yeah. of YC founders who had invested in each other's companies five, six years ago. I mean, Josh Buckley yeah. did the same thing, right? Invested in other yeah. YC founders and it turned out really well. Maybe to close out here, what's your advice for, for founders who are getting started? Most of the people who are listening to this show are like, 
you know, they're considering bootstrapping or self-funding. They're in the very early stages. Some might be considering raising money, but it's always traditionally been kind of a thing that you have to live in Silicon Valley to do. And that's been changing, especially over the last couple of years. How should founders think about going about starting a startup? You know, there's so many different pieces of advice out there, so many different ways to start. What's your, what's Shahid Khan's take on, on what it's like to be a successful founder and, and how to get started? There isn't one size fits all answer. I think it's more about if building your startup while you're working a full-time job works for you, great. You know, I've there there have been a number of people who have been successful that way um, to get to, you know, either some conviction level for them to leave their job. Some people leave, you know, off the gate before they even have an idea just so they could start exploring. So it works, you know, in many different ways. But I think some of the things that have been proven truer than before is you're exactly right. You know, Silicon Valley is decentralizing. So you can start a business from anywhere as long as, you know, you're on indie hackers, you're on products and you're kind of engaging with the community. You're putting yourself out there. You generally have a low, low to no ego uh, when it comes to getting feedback and getting advice from people, um, you know, when they start playing with the product. I, I remember listening to this on a Gary Vee podcast and I think it's, it's truer more than ever. I don't know if you've heard the quote, you know, there's two ways to build the tallest building in the city. You can either build the tallest building in the city or you could spend your time breaking everyone else's down. So I think, and that's a really important piece, right? And it's, it's, it's similar to the feedback of so many people try to like over-engineer their idea or their market or their like solution. And it's like, just go and start building. And it can like, it's proof that if you go on, archive.org and look at the very early visuals of what Loom looked like. It looked like someone, it looked, it, it looked hideous. And that's probably the safest word I can use to describe it. And I was the one who designed it, right? So it, it, it's like, it just go out there, put something out there, put something in the hands of people who could use your product and just learn and just keep your iteration cycles fast. Really lean into first principles thinking, constantly ask yourself, what are the things that, you know, matter most right now? Why am I building what I'm building? And if you continue doing that, I think you'll slowly just inch at your way. It's the common, you know, thought process of like, things just happen gradually, and then it happens suddenly. And that's, yeah. you know, very true about how Loom was able to scale into where it is today. Yeah, I love that point. And I think to give things sort of a chance to eventually start building up suddenly, you gotta get started. And it's so easy, at least half the founders I talk to, their biggest problem is that they're stuck in this analysis mode. They're thinking about all the different possibilities and they overanalyze it to some degree where they have a much higher chance of success if they, if they do what you're doing or do what you're suggesting. Just get started, iterate quickly. Don't worry too much if the first version is perfect or if it's exactly what you want to build or if it's going to be this huge thing because you learn so much, I think, just from trying and doing. Like with Loom, you never would have, you never would have known about this sort of video sharing application if you hadn't actually tried to sell this other app that wasn't that good exactly. to customers. And so uh, exactly. I love this advice. If you're listening and you're stuck, just pick something and, and get started working on it and you'll learn as you go. Exactly. And that's honestly the best way. All right, Shahid Khan, thanks so much for coming on to the Andy Hackers podcast. Do you want to let listeners know where they can go to learn more about what you're up to at Hyper and Product Hunt and Prologue in general? Yeah, I'm, I'm most active on Twitter. Uh, you can you know follow me um at underscore shahid k i often talk about you know 
the learnings and anything that we're announcing on the hyper side, on the prologue side. So, and I also share a number of founder lessons along the way. All right. Thanks again, Shahid. Thank you.